0: Okay, so uh, welcome everyone, and thank you so much for all being here. Hello, my name is Devin Ashwood. I'm the director at Gaia House, and um, I've uh, I'll be hosting this evening with the support of Anne, who's our technical support. If you've got any technical questions, please do contact her. This is a. a, a a fundraising event for, for Gaia House and we'd like to thank everybody uh, for, for joining us from all around the world. There's people here from all over the UK, all over the United States, um, people from around Europe, uh, Spain, got some people from Oxford, Manchester, London. Um, wonderful to have people from so far afield joining us for this celebratory event to support the survival of Gaia House which is a uh, probably most of you know a meditation retreat center based in devon in the uk and um it's just so heartening to have so many people coming together to support this uh dharma event that supports a, a dharma center a refuge for so many and um just a few housekeeping things if that's okay for me to go into this uh, you, you should be muted at the moment and uh that will continue throughout uh, the majority of the uh, evening or the day, if it's uh, if you're in the, uh, different parts of the world. And um, there will be a, an opportunity for questions and answers at the end. And there's different ways of you engaging with, with that. Um, but uh, I could, could explain more later, but you'll be able to either raise your hand in the uh, if you know how to use Zoom by clicking that raise hand button um, or... By uh, typing into the chat and sending me a a personal message in the chat room. Later on, you can ask questions that way. Mm. And uh, I'd just like to thank uh, Sharon Salzberg for coming this evening and supporting us. Sharon, uh, many of you will be aware, is uh, a meditation pioneer in, in the West. Uh, she's uh, a leader in um, the mindfulness and um, Dharma movements, a best selling author, and she was really one of the first people to bring meditation and mindfulness into to mainstream American culture of, over 45 years ago. And uh, her, particularly, particularly her relatable and demystifying approach to the Buddha's teachings and to mindfulness teaching, has influenced generations of uh, med- meditation teachers, wel- wellness practitioners. Um, since that time, uh, Sharon's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Bar, Massachusetts, and she's, she's authored 11 books, including um, the bestseller Real, Real Happiness. And it's now in its second, in its, uh, uh, second edition. And more recently, Sharon uh, uh, launched her, her new book, uh, Real Change, Mindfulness to Hear Ourselves and the World. And this book is the, is the basis of the sort of talk that she's going to be giving this evening. So I understand Sharon's going to give a, a brief uh, guided meditation to help us all to settle here this, today. And then offer a talk with a chance at the end to ask questions if you'd like to. And uh, as there'll probably be more questions than we'll have time for. But So please keep your questions short and to the point if you can. That would be really helpful. And also, uh, yeah, as I say, you can either ask them in person uh, by raising your hand and, and asking to speak, or you can type them in the chat, and I'll, I'll read them out on your behalf if you'd like me to do that later. Anyway, once more, a big thank you to Sharon, who I'm going to hand you over to now, and a thank you to you all for joining us and to the whole team that worked behind the scenes to set all this up. Much appreciation, Sharon.
1: Thank you so much. It's a great delight to be with you all. It's mid-morning here. I'm in Massachusetts, next door to the Insight Meditation Society, where I have a house. Uh, it's actually a duplex. Some of you practiced, I think, a few weeks ago with my colleague, Joseph Goldstein, who lives at the other end of of the entryway, uh, so we share a duplex. And... um Yes, so I thought uh, we could begin with a short meditation together, which I'll guide, just a kind of foundational exercise, and then I'll speak, and then we'll have a chance for another longer meditation, somewhat longer, not not, not endless really, but uh, maybe uh, a loving-kindness practice before we take questions. And somewhere in there, very likely, it'll be a short break, just so we can all just stretch and relax and so on. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's really, uh, they're not many places that I really miss. England is actually one of them. And I don't miss being on an airplane constantly or or the degree of my life that was devoted to arrangements about travel, like who's going to pick me up at the airport, where am I going to stay, what am I going to do? Which was a considerable amount of time, I feel like, being still, I have just this captured time, which is is really incredible, but there are people certainly I miss being with, and there are places and um, so no doubt when things change uh, that will change as well and i'll I'll try to find the middle way between incessant crazy constant travel and uh, going nowhere, <laughs> which is the other extreme um and certainly to the places that I really love and miss. So one of the uh, foundational exercises, for those of you who are perhaps somewhat more new to practice in, in meditation, is to choose an object of awareness, to rest our attention on that object, and when our attention wanders to the past, to the future, anywhere, we see if we can let go gently and just come back to that chosen object. Now that sounds like a little simplistic maybe, and we'll talk more about how profound that actually is in many layers, but that object can really be anything. And here we have some of the many methods of meditation. It could be the feeling of the breath, which is what I'm going to suggest. It could be another sensation in your body, say your hands touching something like that if the breath doesn't work for you for some reason, and that is true for some number of people. It could be a mantra, it could be a sound, it could be the phrases of loving kindness, it really could be anything. But it's that resting quality, that settling quality on an object, and very much the letting go gently and coming back without blame or without judgment, Just letting go and starting over. That's really at the core of this kind of exercise. So if you have to let go and come back like a billion times in the little period that we're gonna sit together, that's okay. All right, so let's sit comfortably. Lying down is fine. Somebody's lying down. I see in the chat, which is totally fine. You can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. You may be accustomed Say to practicing with your eyes open, that's fine. If you get very sleepy, see if you can open your eyes and continue on in that way. And we'll start just by listening to sound. The sounds of my voice are other sounds. It is a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing our experience to come and go. And of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others. But we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. We let them come, we let them go. They can wash through us and bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. Feel the earth supporting you. Feel space touching you. Usually we think about touching space. We think about picking up our finger and like poking it in the air but space is already touching us. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can move from the conceptual level like fingers to the world of direct sensation. Picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. And notice that the world of direct sensation is the world of constant change. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath on that same level, feeling the sensations. Wherever the breath is clearest for you or strongest for you, that may be at the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen, find that place, bring your attention there and rest. See if you can feel one breath. without concern for what's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath. It's just this one. And as images or sounds or sensations or emotions may arise, if they're not very strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them flow on by your breathing. But if they are strong, you get picked up, whirled away into fantasy, into long chains of discursive thinking, or you fall asleep. Truly don't worry about it, you can recognize that, see if you can let go gently, bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. So thank you for that. It's a lovely way to begin. I want to thank you to all of you for your support for Gaia house and, um, I'm sitting here in Massachusetts next door to the Insight Meditation Society, just through the woods, and I know what it's like very much on the other side of uh, trying to keep um, a sanctuary going, and a retreat center that serves so many people in these extremely unusual times. I. Um, went over there, uh, not too long ago to the retreat center. I hadn't been there. I've been here since March. Um, I came up to Massachusetts from New York city where I also rent a small apartment. Uh, I had just, I had traveled all of February in California had just gotten back to New York and, um, did some very large programs and and started feeling this is like feels weird. This feels really bad. And, Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll go up to Barry, where I have a house. And uh, I thought I was coming here for two weeks with my snow boots. And uh, seven months later, I realized I needed to get back to New York even briefly, which I did very briefly. Um, and now I'm back here. So uh, my snow boots are, are very useful, once again. I've been through three seasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went next door... Um, maybe two months ago, something like that, uh, because it's been closed and uh, there's a, a very small staff there. Um, and I went there in order to film something because these people needed to film and I needed enough space to be some distance away from the camera. And uh, so we went over there and it was so interesting to me because I had just been in my apartment in New York City which um, somebody is going in to help clean, but other than that, nobody goes in there. And it, it felt so lonely, like there was no energy there. It was waiting for life to return in my apartment. And I walked into the meditation hall at the retreat center and it felt it felt like it was filled with light, like it, nothing had been lost or drained away in this time of, of nobody coming. And renewing the energy. And I thought, it's oh, so interesting. It's like, um, got such a powerful presence by now that even nobody physically coming into practice, uh, is, is somehow eroding that or making it go away. So, uh, I have such a strong sense about these places and the importance of, of these places and really the gift that they can provide and will provide physically once again, uh, and certainly are providing now through programming. Um, so I did have a book come out. Uh, it's called Real Change, and every word of it, except for the preface, was written before the pandemic. Uh, so imagine my concern that I had written a book that uh was not going to be that relevant in such extreme times. And I'm I'm really happy people say the opposite. But anyway, the book was supposed to come out in June sometime, and once the pandemic happened, the publisher decided to postpone it, mm-hmm. the pub date, till September 1st. Mm-hmm. So that gave me a little bit of time. And in that interval, a friend of mine, a journalist, was reading it in order to excerpt it somewhere. And he said to me, you know, I really like the book, but I keep reading those examples and thinking, that's what made you anxious. Wait till you see what's coming. (laughs) So I thought, uh, uh, so I went to the publisher and I said, would you be okay now that we have this delay? If I wrote a new preface, and somehow try to contextualize what I had been saying to also include these times. And, and they said, yes. So then I had the challenge of writing the preface. So, um, the really pertinent question for me in that entire process was what's still true. Like in the midst of very heightened anxiety and grief, and disruption and uncertainty and anger and all of the things that were, and exhaustion that were so uh, prevalent, what's still true? And that reminded me of the word Dharma in Sanskrit, which is usually translated as the truth or the laws of nature or sometimes the Buddhist teaching, but which actually means that which sustains us that which upholds us, that we can count on, what we can count on, what we can rely on. So what's still true? What are we relying on? And of course I asked myself that question. What am I relying on? What isn't broken in the midst of so much change? And I thought of that rather provocative statement from the Buddha when he said, can you hear the birds <laughs> when he said, uh, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. Hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. And I always felt that was a little bit quirky as a statement from the Buddha. Because I thought, well, here's a mystery in permanence, you know talking on and on about how everything's changing and this is an eternal law? Look at that. Uh, but I think it's very much in that spirit, like even when we don't want it to be true, what is really true? <laughs> What's still true? I mean, aren't there times we would much rather respond to hatred with hatred? It's much nearer at hand. <gasps> it's more obvious a, a reaction, but perhaps hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. And I realized that um, so much of what I was counting on was born and uh, not only generated, but, but sustained through my own meditation practice. And that's some of what I wanted us to talk about today. And I think for everybody, that's a very provocative and relevant question. Like what's still true? Like, what am I counting on? there's so much change and uh, I'm mean, I don't know how your lives have been. Uh, partly because I have so many connections in New York city and, you know, which was such a bad scene for a very long time. And I know lots of people who've experienced a lot of loss very directly. Um, and even on just the level of expectation, like I didn't think I'd be here, you know, when I came up with my snow boots. Um, I didn't think I'd be here still. I didn't think uh, life would look exactly like this. I didn't think um, my book tour would be virtual. I didn't think I'd have to, I didn't think Zoom would become a verb the way Google became a verb, you know, and that life would look the way it is. And um, so much change. But what what's still true? What actually is a kind of guiding light or... North star. Another way of saying that is what's still intact. I wrote this in, in that preface and, uh, it's something I I had read years ago, which was that after the atom bomb uh, dropped in Hiroshima, there was even further devastation amongst the people when a rumor spread that grass and flowers and trees would never grow again as though the very laws of nature had also been blown apart. And that, as terrible, obviously, as things were, once that rumor was dispelled and people were reassured that, in fact, yes, grass would grow again, trees would grow again, flowers would would bloom again, there was a different ability to go on. So another way of saying that, Is what's still intact? What's whole? When everything else seems kind of shaky or very shaky, like what's still whole? What's intact? And again, you know, for me, as I did this exploration, so much of what I discovered I was counting on, what I found intact, was born through my meditation practice. So, uh, those are certain qualities obviously found in you know many many realms in life. But for me, just given my background, so much of it is something that is most directly accessible through meditation. So as many of you probably know, uh, mm-hmm. I went to India low these many years ago as a college student, I was 18. Uh, it was 1970, and I uh, went to India as part of an independent study program through my university because I very much wanted to learn how to meditate. I had taken an Asian philosophy course in college and in a uh, miracle of intuition when I heard about meditation practice in that course I didn't think casually oh maybe I'll read a couple of books about that or that sounds so interesting maybe I'll pursue it someday in graduate school as a field of study or "Uh, wow that's so exotic you know I could never do that I just thought I've got to learn how to do it I, I just I have to see what's possible for me. And that I consider actually the alchemy of the entire spiritual process, because we can so easily stand on the sidelines and not move into the center of possibility ourselves. And to actualize something, to explore it directly, uh, to have that sense of breathing life into something instead of holding it as an abstract value, um, that's what's most important. That can be described in many ways. Uh, I described it as the word faith in uh, an earlier book I'd written called Faith, not meaning faith as uh, doctrine or dogma, but that very movement uh, of showing up, of testing something out for oneself, of not standing back and, and just uh, thinking about something, but trying to make it real. And so I did. I, I mean, I didn't really want to go to India. First off, I was going to college in this town in New York state called Buffalo. So I looked around Buffalo. This is 1970. And I just did not see it anywhere. So, uh, I created this independent study project and presented it to the university and said, I want to go to India study meditation. And they said, okay. Uh, so off I went, now I look back, you know, and I think, what was I thinking? You know, when I was eighteen, I I was a New Yorker. I grew up there, and uh, Buffalo is in the same state. And I'd never even been to California when I went to India. You know, so it was like, wow. But I did, and of course, not just me, but you know, many of us decided we we had to take a journey in order to try to actualize something, not uh, very important, and so. We do that every day when we look at our values and we don't just think, oh, that's nice. I have a friend actually who's British who grew up in the Church of England, and he told me that from the time he was a child and he would hear, love thy neighbor as thyself, he would feel just a thrill, go through his whole body. It just resonated deeply with him. But from the time he was a child, he would get into trouble. Because he would then ask, well, how? How do we do that? We don't actually like our neighbor very much. We don't seem to like ourselves very much. Like, how? So he was, he was in trouble always. Uh, and that how is, is a really extremely important question. Like, how do I take these values, which I sense are, are, uh, important and, and correct and actually make them real? That would be something that was still true. Um, so when I say meditation practice has been the source of, of much of my uh, sense of these skills, um, I don't see meditation as something that like seals us off. And that in fact is the premise of this, of this new book that how we live and uh, how we view the world, how we have a sense of who we are and others and then how we act based on that worldview, they're all intertwined. And so that's why the subtitle of the book is something like mindfulness to heal ourselves and the world uh, because it really becomes this interdependent process. So from the first time I was introduced to meditation, which was January of 1971, it was presented as a skills training. And it's those very skills that I am drawing on myself in, in this time. And that I think allow us to have that sense of integration between our own inner work and the way that we manifest in the world. And when I say the world, that might mean our family, it might mean our neighbors, it might mean our community, it might mean the globe in terms of our, our sense of connection throughout. So, uh, the first skill is concentration, which is a little bit of a funny word for some people. Um, one, another way of saying it would be centering or stabilizing and another way of saying it is resting. Right. Uh, many of us would describe ourselves as fairly distracted, maybe not in every arena of life, but at least in some. And this is a particularly odd time for many because a day can be very unstructured. And so it's all kind of a blur. I know some of you will have children walking through or pets climbing over you or, you know, it's, uh, it's different. And it's easy to just feel all torn apart and, and confused. Even if you're not an experienced meditator, you may just sit down to think something through even in just ordinary times and find that your mind has flipped into the past, not in a useful way which is also possible, but in a completely useless way. And very often we go back to ruminate on something where we now have some regret, but we're not thinking about it with an eye to making amends or for lessons learned, we're just going over it and over it and over it and over it to no avail. It's not gonna be different because we've gone over it and over it and over it and over it. And that's a huge amount of our life energy just drained away. We're scattered. And or and I say especially in a time like this, and our minds jump to the future and we create a scenario that has not happened and may never happen, but we're filled with anxiety about it. It's like before I went to New York City. Um I was just, I should say there's obviously a big difference between watching your mind and being enmeshed in the play of your mind so that it's very consequential. So sometimes people say to me, cause I use all these examples that are actually from my mind and people say, really, you've been meditating all these years and that's still happening. That's very discouraging, but do not be discouraged cause I feel very different uh, because again, it's very different to watch something play than it is to kind of take it to heart and be overcome and find yourself acting from it and, and all uh, confused by having been taken over. So before I went back to my apartment in New York, when I made that brief visit, um, about a month ago, um, I would be meditating and I'd see my mind, you know, like, well, Aren't they saying that if, if you haven't run water for a long time, you might get Legionnaire's disease if you when you turn on the water? Like, what are the symptoms of Legionnaire's disease? Or I know somebody goes into clean, but how often does she go into clean? Is that long enough? Is it often enough so that I'm not going to get Legionnaire's disease? How am I going to know the difference? Maybe I'm going to have COVID. Maybe I'm going to have Legionnaire's disease. You know, where am I going to go to a clinic? How's it going to be? And it's just like watching, like, whoa. Now imagine being sucked into that, you know, and overtaken by that. And very often we are without some kind of skills training. So we create a world that has not happened and may never happen. And we're filled with anxiety about that. And this too is in contrast to a useful imagination planning for the future, which can happen. Mm -hmm. This is very different. So we lose a lot of energy into the past, into the future, kind of all over the place. And what we do in the process of deepening concentration is gather all that energy, all that attention and just settle. The quality of the settling has a quality of rest. We're not dismissing or hating the thoughts, the feelings, anything that may come up, but there's some space from it and we're settled. And what what we find and what I find is that this is sort of a crucial tool in this time because in the lack of structure in the complete changing of information and in the, you know, so much that's going on, uh, it's just such an unsettled feeling and things that we may be doing, um, may take a lot of effort. Um, I don't know how many of you may be school teachers, for example, in the States, Uh, when I read the chat in, in a Zoom session, often many people are school teachers and it's, they're working twice as hard, you know, as they did before. And they were working hard to begin with. Um, and you know, it's just like, it's too much. And, and we just need those moments when we can settle, when we can rest. And part of the problem we have, and this will figure throughout a lot of what I'm going to say, is that we can consider those efforts selfish or self-centered like there's so much to do or you know uh i can't really i mean rest sounds like lazy you know but uh we need that because if you uh look at say the stress dynamic it's a dynamic there's the stressor the circumstance the situation and then there's the resource with which it's met And we know that from very ordinary times, you can be in a beautiful place. Rainbows, waterfalls, surrounded by loving friends, but you're depressed or you're frightened. You feel cut off. You can't even let in the kindness coming your way. You can't even take in the beauty of your surroundings. It's not a good time, even though you're in this amazing place. And we know, that we can be in a time of a lot of challenge and a lot of adversity, or maybe we don't even know from our own experience, but we know someone like that where there can be a lot of challenge, a lot of difficulty going on, but you don't feel so alone. You feel like you're more part of a community or you don't feel, um, blaming of yourself. You're not adding that to the difficulty that already exists or, uh, you feel there's love in this world and you can let some of it in or uh, you have a sense of uh, daring in meeting this. I mean, there's so many things that might figure in. So it's different, even though the situation is really hard. That's genuinely true. Um, so how we meet it, that sense of resource is very important. And a lot of people think that that too leads to a kind of laziness that we don't, if we're emphasizing that, if we're focusing on that, that sense of resource, we're saying, well, don't bother to try to change the conditions. Don't bother to try to affect the stressor or the circumstance. And that's not true. We do make effort to the best of our ability. Um, But at the same time, our superpower is actually in that sense of resource because not only are we able to sustain ourselves more, we can sustain an effort more toward seeking change when we're coming more from a place of wholeness rather than brokenness or desperation. So we work with that sense of resource and and this quality of rest. And settledness is a big part of that because otherwise we get caught in momentum and there's no break and we just go on and on and on and on. And this figures in the next skill I'm going to talk about as well, which is mindfulness, but let's, let's keep it at rest for a moment. And I think of, um, this study that Richie Davidson did, uh, in the States and University of Wisconsin at Madison, um, where Richie's a neuroscientist, a long-term meditator. And somehow he got permission to induce physical pain in people. And um, he had everybody in an fMRI machine because he was looking at their brains. And I don't know exactly what it was. It was some kind of thing, you know. I'm sure it wasn't horrible, but, you know, it was it was painful. Uh, and this is interesting, especially because we use physical pain as a kind of template for emotional pain, for heartache, for disappointment. It's the same skills that we employ in trying to work with both. So he had this process where he'd induce some pain and he had a group of people who'd been meditating for eight weeks. He had a group of people who had never meditated And he said that the most striking difference between the two groups was after the pain was withdrawn because the non-meditators would feel, you know, whatever. And then the pain was withdrawn, but they'd flip immediately into an anticipatory cycle. Mm -hmm. When's it coming back? How bad is it going to be? Maybe it'll be even worse. Mm -hmm. So they never got any rest. They never got a break. They never had any peace. Whereas the meditators would have a reaction to the pain because it hurts, but the pain was withdrawn, they could relax, they could be at ease, they could have peace and that's restorative, right? Rather than just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So I think about that quite a lot, it's not selfish. It's uh, my friend, Bob Thurman, who just retired from being a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia University in New York. His favorite word as a translator and scholar seemed to be realistic. And we would teach together, and I'd think, well, that's not a very exciting word, you know? Like, why put in this effort, or why try to practice, or why go on retreat in order to be more realistic? It's like, all right. Uh, but the more I both listen to him and just think it through, I began to appreciate that word. I thought, well, that means being aligned with the truth of things. And if you're not aligned with the truth of things, it's like the proverbial banging your head against the wall. You know, it's like, it's good to be realistic because that's what's true. So we look at that quality of rest and it's it's not indolence, but it's really like just that sort of settling. That's what concentration Provides And that would be even a few moments, say, of being busy, being caught in some activity, or feeling a lot of pressure coming at you, and just remind yourself, okay, just take a few breaths. That's one reason why, while the breath is not universal as that chosen object in that kind of exercise, it is commonly included. And if not the breath, then something like the breath which is accessible wherever you are, because I like to think, I mean, the examples are all a little wrong right now because of how we're living, but um, I would tend to use the example of going to work and uh, somebody losing their temper and starting to get angry and you're starting to get anxious in reaction. Being able to remind yourself, okay, just take a few breaths. Which will bring you back to the moment, bring you back to yourself. And once we come back to ourselves in that way, we come back to our values. We come back to what we really care about more than anything. It doesn't require equipment. It doesn't require a kind of strange show. You don't have to sit down cross-legged on the floor and close your eyes in the middle of the office. Right. Nobody even has to know you're doing it, and so it's a completely portable resource. It's totally private, wherever we go, and I really value that. So for us to have something that will just kind of help us recalibrate, like okay, this is just right now. I'm not stricken with Legionnaires' disease. It's like this is now, just here, uh, is is very very important, and I find. I am counting on that a lot. And then there's the quality of mindfulness, which of course is a very popular word these days. It uh, does mean many different things classically. um, One way of describing mindfulness is a quality of awareness where our attention to what's happening in the present moment and the perception of that moment is not distorted by bias, like old fears or anticipation of the future. Or, um, you know, maybe there are certain emotions we've been sort of conditioned not to allow, and those very emotions come up or um, all kinds of things that we can have something of a distorted, relationship to one way of describing it is looking at how we are trained or conditioned to be with pleasant things, unpleasant things and neutral things by things. I mean, anything, sight sounds, thoughts, sensations, feelings, Our conditioning around painful emotions, painful situations, uh, painful sensations. And again, you know, culturally, I'm speaking uh, from the point of view of somebody uh, in the States, and maybe even more particularly as a New Yorker, I don't know. Um, but there are uh, many ways in which we tend to be taught that. Fear, uh, greed, jealousy, all the kind of painful emotions that may arise. We're taught to add shame and a sense of having lost control. This is wrong. I shouldn't feel this way. Um, I should be more on top of things. Um, Comparison. There's so many things we tend to add. The word... um, In Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text is proliferation. And uh, I once heard, it's it's Papancha, which means proliferation, P-A-P-A-N-C-A. And I once heard a translator describe it as the imperialistic tendency of mind, where something happens and the entire world is taken over. So the example I usually use for that is Uh, Joseph goes to everyone's teaching somewhere, not England, uh, having a cup of tea uh, in the kitchen. And um, somebody came into the kitchen in some distress and said to Joseph, I just had this really terrible experience. So Joseph said, well, what happened? And uh, the man said, well, I was sitting and I felt all this tension in my jaw and I realized what a completely uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people and it's never gonna change. Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And it was really interesting for me, like watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Joseph said something to him like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's like painful enough, and, and genuinely so, to feel that tension in your jaw. But on top of that, you're now going to be alone for the rest of your life. So one of the ways we describe mindfulness is look for the add-ons. That's what we're actually relinquishing or letting go of which brings us back to the direct experience of what is. So with a painful experience, usually we are off and running very quickly because we're taught it's wrong, not painful, but wrong. And um, in the realm of emotion, it's not that um, we're trying to discard certain feelings. And I don't have the cup here with me. Some, I have a friend who, has gotten into the new habit of making me cups and mugs with the sayings that I often use on them. And one says, we feel what we feel. I don't have my, we feel what we feel mug in here, Uh, but I have one. (laughs) We feel what we feel. And we have to allow ourselves the dignity of every feeling. That's different than diving into the feeling and having it overcome you It's also different obviously than pushing it away or shoving it away. We feel what we feel and we're not trying to rebuff feelings or annihilate feelings, but maybe we want a different relationship to the feelings. So my favorite definition of mindfulness actually came from an article I read in the New York times many years ago. with one of the very early pilot programs going into classrooms. And this was a fourth grade classroom. So it was children about nine or 10 years old. So the journalist asked one of the kids, this young man, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And he responded by saying mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought, that is a great definition of mindfulness. Because what does it imply? It implies you know you're feeling angry when you're starting to feel angry. Not after it's escalated. Not after you've sent the email. Not after you've hit someone in the mouth. But as it's beginning. It also implies a certain balanced relationship to the anger. If we get consumed by, overcome by, defined by every feeling that comes up, we'll probably hit a lot of people in the mouth because life can be very frustrating. And yet, if we hate what we're feeling, we try to deny it, we try to push it away, we get tighter and tighter and tighter, and then we explode. So sometimes we call mindfulness that place in the middle where we can fully recognize what's happening, but there's also some space. And in that space, creativity may arise, options may arise. One of the big myths about mindfulness is that it will leave you passive and just complacent and not doing anything about anything. And I often, um I think the language that we use and it's not incorrect language, it just has certain associations with certain words like to define mindfulness as accepting things the way that they are is true, but doesn't it sound kind of passive? Like, What if things are really bad, you know, like, what does it mean to accept them? And another definition is to be with the present moments experience without judging it. What does that mean? And, you know, now we all scrambled to say, well, there's a difference between discernment and judgment you know, clearly you should be able to tell, uh, the difference between something that you want to pursue and something that it might well be worth letting go of or you want to challenge or whatever it might be. So, uh, I was, um, teaching once somewhere and, uh, I began the meditation instruction actually the way we began that first sitting by saying, let's sit and listen to sound. And somebody raised their hand and said, well, what if it's the sound of the smoke alarm I hear going off? Should I get up or should I sit here mindfully knowing the smoke alarm is going off? And I said, I'd get up, (laughs) you know, but it sounds that way, doesn't it? We're gonna accept things the way that they are and we're gonna be with things without judgment. It's like, oh yeah, smoke alarm. I see that, I'm not judging. You know, it's not like that. We act, we respond, we make choices, we have all of that, but hopefully not from a driven place, but from within this greater sense of spaciousness. So I like to think of that kid, that nine or 10 year old kid maybe thinking, hit someone in the mouth last week, didn't work out that well. What might I do? You know, how can I express myself? And I think of this story, I, I like it so much I keep putting it into different books. Um about uh I have these friends who have an organization called the Holistic Life Foundation in Baltimore, Maryland and uh they teach yoga and meditation in these inner city schools there and they told me the story about this one young girl who is a little younger than uh fourth grade. So maybe let's say seven years old, something like that. And she was a fighter and the kids, the other kids would tease her and bully her and, but her response was to like knock them out. And she was always getting into trouble. So they taught her how to meditate. And they tell me that one day they walked into like the cafeteria or the gymnasium, some public place. And they saw this little girl and she was holding up another little girl against the wall by the throat. And then she looked at her and she said, you're just lucky. And I had to meditate and she dropped her and she went off into a corner and like composed herself. You know, they actually weren't teaching her to be passive and just take it, but maybe not continue the pattern of reactivity that was actually damaging her because she was in so much trouble. So we learn how to be with things in a different way. And that includes all of these painful feelings. And it's so hard I find in a time like this, if you have very unrealistic expectations of what you should be feeling. And I've seen that of course, my whole life as a teacher, um, it didn't take like a pandemic, you know, to To get there, I remember this one woman came to me once and and she kept saying, I should be better, you know, my meditation should be keeping me calmer. I don't don't know why I'm so upset. I don't know why things are so difficult. And I said to her, well, I'd like you to write me a list of every, because I didn't really know, you know, I said, like you to write me a list of everything that's happened to you this year. And she chose not to write it. She chose to draw it out. And then we looked at it together. And I said, Well, I mean, look at this year. Your house burnt down. Your cat died. You got estranged from your brother. This is a bad year. This is like really, really hard stuff. So it's not a surprise. And I think I've actually been editing somebody's document and I see it there. I see it in the way I use language. I see it in the way people ask questions and the way they use language. In the editing that I was doing, somebody defined resilience as basically keeping it together in a time of adversity. And I said, well, surely resilience has an implication of bouncing back. So that must be from somewhere other than being together, right? And that brings us back to that meditation exercise, that very first one. We lose it. We make a mistake. We fall down. We yell at our kids. This is the way it came up, something I was doing yesterday. How can I keep from being annoyed with my children as we're stuck here in the house? Well, that's not gonna happen. But we come back more quickly. We come back more gracefully. We come back with more kindness and that only helps us come back, actually. Resilience can't mean like a steady state. It has to mean we, we blow it, we fall down, things break, we come back. One of the poetic ways we say it in terms of the meditation instruction, going back to just that exercise, is that the healing is in the return, not in never having wandered to begin with. That's what resilience is. And so people say to me all the time, how can I maintain mindfulness all day long? How can I keep the level of concentration I attained in retreat? How can I never? And it just is not gonna be that way. We're gonna lose it. We're gonna learn how to come back more quickly. And the kindness we can have for ourselves is a key ingredient in that. So mindfulness, anything might happen. But we are different, we learn to be different with some very painful things. We also learn through mindfulness to have a different relationship to pleasure, to joy, to delight, to wonder, to maybe very small things that are also happening, but either we're too distracted to take them in And this goes along the same lines as rest. If we never take them in, we'll end up more depleted, more exhausted. We actually need to see what are the building blocks of feeling restored, feeling some energy. So maybe we're too distracted, or maybe it doesn't seem like enough. And so we don't really appreciate. I think my favorite story about that is about this time a friend of mine brought me to um, Washington DC where there was a, there's this area um, with a great concentration of cherry trees that all bloom at once. And that's called cherry blossom season and it's a big tourist attraction. Um, There it was anyway. And uh, so we got there uh, for cherry blossom season And I remember standing there looking at these trees and thinking, this is so beautiful. All these many trees and these beautiful, delicate pink blossoms. And so many of them. And then my friend said, oh no, it's past the peak. And I thought, oh no, I'm having a bad experience. This isn't good enough. It's past the peak. So suddenly it wasn't that joyful, right? It was like oh, problematic. So we do that, and I'd also say, and especially this is true in a time like this, we feel too guilty. There's too much suffering, either in a personal way or that we see around us, and it just seems wrong to enjoy, you know, a flower, a sunrise, whatever. Um, but it's not wrong again because it it all goes in that sort of sense of building resource and having the wherewithal to then meet challenges in a different way. So mindfulness does that as well. And then I think the last thing I'll say about the skills of meditation has to do with connection, a feeling of connection. And that I think is one of the strangest things of all because, um, Meditation can seem like a completely solitary activity. And and on one level it can be, you may be all alone. You may have your eyes closed. It seems like you're cut off, but we're never cut off. And somehow in the process of the meditative uh, act over time, what deepens in the oddest way is a, a tremendous sense of connection to others, really to to life, and um, I think that's because the deepest consequence of cultivating mindfulness is actually insight or wisdom. We get to see for ourselves the nature of our experience, not what we've been told to believe or whatever, but we can see much more directly, and one of the things we see, well, of course, we see things like Constant change. Everything really is constantly changing. But We see it in a way, it's like an embodied wisdom so that uh, it's not theoretical. It changes the way we relate to holding on, to fear of dying, to uh, the experience of loss. And one of the things we see in that same vein is the profound truth of interconnection, how connected all of our lives are. Even before the pandemic, I kept reading that many places in the world were experiencing an epidemic of loneliness, including England, which apparently appointed a minister of loneliness. Um, And partly that was put down to uh, the dissolution of many forms of civic society where we used to get together. Uh, somebody wrote this book that's... It was a really good book. It's it's most wondrous because of its title, which is Bowling Alone. Um, I don't even know if you call it bowling. You might call it something else. But uh, in the States, there would be these leagues, you know, where uh, people, like every Wednesday night or something like that, would go bowl and together. And they may not have any relationship with one another in terms of political persuasion or anything, but they were in the same bowling league. And so we had ways of forming community that began to fade as society changed. And so uh, there are lots of reasons why there has been this epidemic of loneliness, and you can imagine now. So even then, I used to read about the powerful role of social connection and healing in different clinical settings. And I always thought, well, it can't just be numbers. Like I have two friends, I need eight friends. It must be some inner sense of being connected to to the world, to others, you know, uh, and I really do believe that's true. And I believe that's what happens as we deepen a meditative process. And of course, there are so many other ways of cultivating that perception that are true and, and worthy, but uh, meditation has been my way. And so it's, it's the skills training um, that I try to offer. And again, you might be all alone, but somehow there's this very deep knowing and then everything shifts. The way we pay attention shifts. Um, there's another practice I'd like us to do. Maybe we'll take a short break and then do a loving kindness practice, which is dedicated to <clears throat> actually, uh, fostering and deepening that sense of connection. And it has, it works through paying attention differently. So let's say with ourselves, we're in the habit of pretty well only reflecting on the mistakes we've made and our flaws. What happens when we wish ourselves well? Or a very uh, telling example would be um, in the formal training in loving kindness meditation, there's a section of it where we offer loving kindness to someone known as a neutral person someone we don't especially like or dislike. We're just kind of indifferent to them. We're neutral toward them. But if we keep offering them loving kindness, we may not know their name we, you know, or anything about them, but what we're doing in effect is paying attention to them instead of looking through them. And what happens is that someone we have objectified suddenly becomes a human being. And of course we objectify animals too, and that is a, you know, another part of the process, but staying with the neutral person for a moment, usually we're encouraged to choose someone we run into now and then, because we get to see, oh, you know, this, this sense of relationship is changing, it's shifting even not knowing their name or whatever. And probably for 45 years, my colleagues and I have been saying, like the checkout person in the grocery store, that is the perfect person. Uh, We usually look right through them, we just count them, we objectify them, they might as well be a piece of furniture. And so I I was reading that out loud, somebody was recording this meditation and I went, whoops, look at that. How do we think we get to eat if we're not growing our own food? We live in an interdependent universe. We are counting on so many and in fact, they're counting on us as well. And that's simply the truth of things which gets revealed in the course of meditation. And that probably more than anything is what I am relying on right now in these times. We see that kind of the terrible face of interconnection through the pandemic. The beautiful face of interconnection is compassion. Um, and it's certainly something we can cultivate. So let's take a break for let's say 10 minutes, uh, stretch, go to the bathroom, make tea uh, if you like, and then we'll come back, we'll do some loving kindness practice and then we'll just have time for questions, okay? I think mindfulness um, itself as a, a practice or series of practices will certainly enhance a sense of loving kindness. By loving kindness I don't mean liking somebody necessarily at all, but having that deep sense that our lives are interconnected. So it's almost more a worldview, a sensibility that may include a feeling, but is not necessarily a, a certain emotional feeling, um, and it does depend on how we pay attention. Uh, so, many people may choose not to also take up a particular practice of loving kindness meditation that is dedicated to the deepening of of loving kindness and qualities like compassion, or you might, because it's a tremendous adventure to explore. It's a different kind of practice. Instead of working to bring us closer to things as they are, which is the goal of mindfulness, I think of loving kindness practice as a stretch, right? We realize, really, I just think of myself all day long and think only of my problems. I'm gonna stretch. And wish myself well. It's not to be conflict-avoidant or uh, ignore real problems at all. But we give so little airtime to wishing ourselves well, to actually paying attention to that grocery store clerk and wishing them well. We give so little airtime to those things that we're going to stretch and see what it's like just to do that. So instead of resting our attention on something like the feeling of the breath in this practice we rest our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases and the i mean there are many ways of doing it it's the way i do it and teach it the phrases are the vehicle for the heart's energy for that that sense of connection it's not a practice where you need to force yourself to feel something magnificent or Anything. The power of the practice comes from the complete wholehearted gathering of all of our attention behind one phrase at a time. And the skill set's really the same. Our minds will wander, see if you can let go, and come back. Now, the phrases are an offering. They're gift-giving. They're generosity of the spirit. And we make that offering to different beings. In a... Short sitting, you know, we're not gonna get through every category known, but we might have bookends like we begin with ourselves, offering loving kindness to ourselves. We end with all beings everywhere. And we might only have time for one person or two in between, or it doesn't have to be a person, you know. There's a category known as the benefactor where I use a puppy these days because my friends adopted a puppy and they're much happier. So I think of the puppy as as a benefactor, you know, so being, Uh, we start with ourselves, we end with all beings everywhere and what we do in the middle might change all of the time. So I'll guide you through just one possible variation of it. If you want to sit comfortably, again, close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease, Just let your energy settle into your body. Many of you may have a loving kindness practice, so you have phrases ready and you can just continue on using those. If it's new to you, common phrases, which I say use for now at any rate, are things like, may I be safe? Be happy? Be healthy. Live with ease, which means ease of heart. May I be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Live with ease. Because of the grammar, people often say, Who am I asking? Well, we're not really asking anybody anything. We're gift giving, we're offering. And see if someone comes to mind who's like a benefactor for you. It means they've helped you. Maybe they've helped you directly. They've helped pick. They've helped pick you up when you've fallen down. Or maybe you've never met them. They've inspired you from afar. The texts say this is the one whom, when you think of them, you smile. It could be an adult. Could be a child. Could be a pet, who makes you smile. And if someone comes to mind, you can bring them here, get an image of them, say their name to yourself, get a feeling for their presence and offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. Even if the words don't seem perfect, they're carrying the heart's energy. May he be safe. Be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And see if you can think of somebody you know who's struggling right now. Bring them here. See what happens as you offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. May you be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Live with ease. And then we're gonna have a gathering, just see who comes to mind. Friends, family, colleagues, puppies. And we'll offer loving kindness to the collective, to the group. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And then all beings everywhere, all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown. May all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze, and we'll end the meditation. So once again, thank you. All beings, thank you. And we'll have some time for questions. Do you want to explain where the raise hand button is?
0: Yeah. Okay, folks, so I think if you click on, uh, if, you've got a, if you're on a PC or a Mac if, and you've got a participants button at the bottom of your screen underneath Sharon, uh, and if you click on that on the right-hand side, um, you should have some options um, to raise hand and various other things. If you don't see raise hand as one of your options, there might be three little dots in a row. If you click on that, raise hand might come up as an option there. If you really struggle, you can click on the chat button and, and either type your uh, question into the chat button to, to directly to me, or you could um, just uh, say, I'd like to, in the chat button, uh, message to me, you could say, could I please ask a question directly to Sharon? So putting your hand up is inviting me to unmute you so that you can ask your question directly. But if, you're, if you don't want to appear on the screen, you can um, send me the message and I'll read it out for you. Okay. So and we have we already have some questions been sent in, Sharon. So I, I could um I could uh uh re- read out one of those if you're okay for me sure. Yeah. And
1: then I have some also that have come to me privately. So Okay. We can we can switch back and well, forth.
0: Do you wanna start or shall I?
1: No, no, you start.
0: Okay. So lots of messages of appreciation coming in as well, Sharon. So thank you so much for, for your talk. It feels like wonderful common sense of, of Dharma to just in such a accessible and practical way to 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 communicate this thank you so this is um a question here and it says could you please say again uh, your thoughts on the word dharma that you said at the start i've often wished for some language that doesn't point just to buddha dharma that we can use in these times and, and in greater contexts
1: uh well you know sometimes the word dharma is translated as just the truth the laws of nature the nature of things but i have seen a translation Uh, of that which upholds us, that which supports us. So it's got that implication of what can we count on, you know? Uh, Ultimately, it's like if you look at something like um, loving kindness uh, as a quality of the heart, of affirming connection, that is very different than our normal use of the word love as a medium of exchange. Like I will love you as long as the following 15 conditions are met, or I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. Um, which is the common feeling, but we can tell that doesn't hold us up in many circumstances. You know, like how long is it going to be before I make a mistake? Um, and so, uh, we look toward that, which can, uh, be relied on no matter what.
0: Thank you, Sharon. Do you, want to, do you want to go for one of the questions you've been sent directly?
1: Sure. Um, somebody says, uh, I practice and I try to integrate mindfulness throughout the day, which is a very good thing to do. Just, um, you know, again, like taking three breaths before some activity or something like that. Uh, but I feel huge amounts of guilt or inadequacy in my practice. Um, I feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm not enough despite the effort I put in. And I think that is a common thread. It's actually one of the reasons that I wrote the book. Um, I felt like in writing the book, I was trying to address two populations in particular. One was meditators who I know, uh, obviously very, a lot of them. And, uh, you know, people who have undertaken a meditation practice who have felt a, a real growing depth of compassion for others, but in terms of taking some action, trying to be of help in some way, whether again, whether it's very personal, uh, with one person, with a neighbor, say, uh, or in a more system wide way, that most people had a feeling of, I could never do enough, I could never be enough, you know, what is. Or I see that a lot in teaching loving kindness. What could my loving kindness mean, you know? Uh, I'm so nothing, <laughs> whatever. I, I think it's a very common feeling. And so uh, one of the most powerful things is to see these thoughts as thoughts. These are stories. And often they are stories others have told about us, whether that is a particular parental figure or uh, a cultural Um, Message or something that we've taken on in some way, but that it is a story someone else has manufactured that we have absorbed. And one of the most powerful things we can do is to see it as just that. Uh, You may not be able to stop something from coming, and that is a very crucial point. You cannot control what will arise in your mind, but you can really change the way you relate to it. Uh, one of the things we say with, say, a very nagging, um, self-critical voice is give it a name, give it a wardrobe, give it a persona, because it will help emphasize the fact that how you relate to it is really everything. And, and some of you have heard me say they um, that I, I actually named my own inner critic Lucy, with apologies to any Lucys who may be on this Zoom, Uh, Based on the Peanuts comic strip character, Lucy, because I once saw a cartoon where Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is? The problem with you is that you're you. And poor Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? And she says, well, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. And this was in a place I was actually in a house. I was doing a retreat in. So anytime I walked by that desk, my eye would fall right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you because that Lucy voice had been so dominant in my earlier life. And um, here's an example of mindfulness. Something happened very soon after I saw the cartoon, like something great happened for me. And my very first thought was never going to happen again. And I responded to the thought with, hi, Lucy, right? Which is very different than, you're right, Lucy, you're always right, which is like falling into it. It's also different than, I cannot believe Lucy's still here. I've been meditating all these years, I'm always, right? It's just like, hi, Lucy, I see you. And that, that, my favorite form of that was actually chill out, Lucy, just chill. You know, I'm not afraid of it and not freaked out about it, but also not overpowered by it. And that's what we learned to do distorted, but I think I got it. So you can tell me if I, if I misunderstood. Um, I, I think, I mean, I have found like, as perhaps you have as well, that the practice of loving kindness for myself, for oneself, uh, is actually a very powerful thing. And, um, it leads to, I think, an openness and a a willingness to, for one example, seek help. So I'm combining your question with someone else's question about a serious health problem. Um, Being willing to seek help, accept help, ask for help, or even just be vulnerable. Now I'm not saying that everybody it's everybody's business to know your diagnosis, or you have to just disclose, you know, uh, in all these other situations, it may not be appropriate at all. But um, to have the feeling, which many of us are conditioned to, I need to be invincible, I need to be the one helping others, or it's such a sign of added weakness to, to ask for help, I think is, it's just this terrible conditioning. And uh, I think it's actually my big passion right now because, um, there's so much happening in the realm of mental health where, uh, it's so difficult to time and there's so much stigma. And, um, and even in places I'm told with very, very good services, um, it's not always the case that people are, Availing themselves of, and I speak from the U.S. where there are not good services in, in many places. The person I was talking to was from Canada and, and they said it's just heartbreaking because these services really do exist and that people are often reluctant to, to get help in some way. And it reminds me of, um, my friend Ramdas who died about almost a year ago, December 22nd. Um, and Ramdas was somebody who was at my first meditation retreat in January of 1971. So we'd known each other for a very long time and maybe 20 years before his death, he had this very severe stroke, maybe 19 years, something like that. He had a very severe stroke and he wasn't supposed to, uh, survive and he did survive and he was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and, uh, his speech was quite affected. He had aphasia, so there would be long pauses in in his speech. And he was somebody who, he had like a golden tongue before the stroke. He would give lectures and it would just be dazzling, you know, his use of language and the fluidity, and uh, he was different. And uh, he moved to Maui, to Hawaii, and uh, he didn't leave except right toward the end of his life. He left once, but... To see him, you had to go to Hawaii, and so uh, about once or twice a year, I would go and teach with him. And there was one time he was speaking, and remember the long pauses in these talks. Um, and he was saying, "You know, I was always the kind of person who would try to help other people or take care of other people, and I could never receive help myself." And having known him since 1971, I would say that's absolutely true. He, you couldn't thank him. You couldn't give him a compliment. You couldn't give him a birthday present. He would like bristle. Um, and then he had the stroke. And he said the hardest thing of all, more than the pain, more than being in a wheelchair, more than the difficulty with his speech was having to accept help. And he said it was the hardest thing of all. And it was the most liberating and, People would say, and I would, I would confirm like toward the end of his life, it's like that barrier between giving and receiving, it disappeared. So he was like pure love. Honestly, it was like he was, he was made of light. And I think that's what the reason was. And he said that in that lecture that he said, you know, one of my most famous books was called How Can I Help? And he said, now I want to write a book called How Can You Help Me? And this is very hard for us, and it's very important. And um, instead of feeling like I'm going to be a burden on people or or whatever, in the right situation when it feels appropriate, because the truth is everybody has something to give, and everybody needs help even if it's just somebody to listen, you know, or be present. It's like, we're all, it's a very mutual thing. It's never a one way direction. And so moving it into more, and it's even with oneself. I mean, I don't know um, what you feel about medication, for example, but I remember a friend of mine uh, who was very, very depressed and um, you could kind of see Knowing her family, the biological or genetic line, you know, uh, very easily. And she told me at one point she was taking antidepressants, and she said, "I want you to know, I'm only taking enough to feel a little bit better. I'm not taking enough to be really happy." So I said, "Why don't you take enough to be really happy?" You know, it's like if you're experimenting, you're taking them. Like, take enough, you know but it's like such a self punishing attitude that most of us have like, I can't take enough to be really happy or I have to work this out, you know, in some impossible way or whatever, you know? And and so that kind of acceptance and generosity toward ourselves uh, figures in things like that as well. Um, And and so I, I really do believe whatever conditioning we have whatever our situation is that um, there is so much possibility f- uh, there's so much human potential that we all share that we we can uh, really be a lot happier we can whatever we're dealing with
0: Thank you, you to meet yourself
1: sure I wish I had a, a picture of her here I I think all my pictures of her are in New York City Um, Do you have a picture of her? Oh, yeah, look at that. Yeah, Amy. I always felt for Amy in writing that book. There's a book. Deepa Ma was one of my main teachers, and it's a nickname, Deepa's mother. Um, And this friend Amy wrote a book about her, which I always felt was a difficult task because there are some teachers in the world who have a kind of facility with language or something, and they say a sentence or two, and you think, oh, that's different. That's, that's powerful. But Deepa Ma wasn't like that. It was not really anything she said. It was her presence that was so transforming. And I thought, well, poor Amy, it's going to be the same story over and over again. Like, I felt really miserable that I was with her. I felt really good, you know, and, uh, but she did it. She wrote a really nice book. Um, I think the, um, and this is, this is, Truthful, I'm not just tr- not tr- trying to make you feel better. I think the most powerful thing of all is really believing beings like that exist. And if you have the ability to meet them, you know, that's wonderful. But the primary lesson is going to be that it's true, it can happen. I mean, uh, my friend Krishnadas, who um, does Hindu devotional chanting, told me when he first met Ramdas, and this was before 1971, uh, he said he realized that the thing he had been yearning for actually existed. And it wasn't because Ramdas was the perfect embodiment of it. Uh, as Krishnadas would say, he became at the end the person. I thought he was in the beginning, <laughs> you know, through some kind of idealization. Um so uh but there was something about him as a vehicle that just said, Oh, there's something else. There's something real different than what I've been taught where happiness lies. And um that I think is the biggest gift and, and you don't have to meet them in order to have that conviction. And that conviction is important because we go through lots of ups and downs in, in a practice and uh sometimes it seems completely worthless and and so on. Now of course it's it's wonderful if you do have the chance to meet them because there's a process where a teacher will often um inspire you to do something or prod you to do something that you may not have thought of. Like sh is the reason I became a teacher is because she told me you're gonna teach. And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I'm not. Uh, you know, but will things evolve anyway in in a great direction? I believe they can, you know, especially if our practice is sincere. And that's what many retreats are about anyway, is to fortify us to have a daily practice, which seems to be the most important thing. Thank you.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Sharon. Can I read out one of the questions that's been sent in, in the chat? Sure. These times, Okay. Well, I, I, I'm aware it's five o'clock, so... Uh,
1: I'm fine, um, but I don't know about... Do have right one more? <laughs> yeah,
0: <please. laughs> but ha- have you got any suggestions about how to deal with a trauma reaction? Trauma of what? Trauma reaction.
1: A trauma reaction. Yeah, well, I mean, I think... Um, it's a place where having a broader understanding of the Dharma and practice is really useful because one of the traps is feeling there's only one way to practice that that's the right way that, uh, anything that looks different is not enough. Um, because, uh, it's a kind of situation where you need a lot of flexibility and, and, for example, one of the underlying principles of practice is balance and balance. It's believed that if we can bring our system into balance, that the things we want like insight, connection, love will emerge all by themselves and balance always looks different, right? Because we get out of balance in different ways at different times. Any one of us. So, uh, In the beginning of my practice, uh, sometimes I talk about, I didn't today, but I talk about how it was very difficult for me to be with the breath because almost as soon as this breath was beginning, I would kind of mentally be leaning forward for the next 50. I was very frightened. I was very wary. I didn't know what might happen next. A lot had already happened to me in my life. I was very hypervigilant. And so for me, balance looked like a settle back. Let the breath come to you. I used to say to myself, you're breathing anyway, because all you need to do is feel it. You know, and so I was just like, settle back. You're breathing anyway. I had so much performance anxiety, it's like I'd never done it before. So balance looked a certain way then. There are times where we're way too far back. We couldn't care less what the breath feels like, and we need to sort of engage more, and it's gonna be different. And so if you're having a traumatic reaction, which almost by its very nature is a lot of suffering, um, it may be sitting with your eyes closed is not the right thing. Certainly going on an intensive silent retreat may not be the right thing in that moment. Um, Walking, movement meditation might be better than sitting. Short sittings uh, are usually much better than longer sittings. And so this is a kind of process where uh, that in that instance it's really great to have a teacher or guide <clears throat> because the um, uh, inflexibility of a system is not going to serve us. There's nothing sacred about sitting for forty-five minutes with your eyes closed. It just isn't. Um, but we take it that way, you know. And I remember I heard about this monastery in Burma where the schedule was five minutes of sitting, five minutes of walking, five minutes of sitting, five minutes of walking. And I thought, how come I never ends up in a place like that? You know, like I always end up and like sit for an hour. <laughs> um, You know, and so I would say, look for, I mean, now there's a whole field of trauma informed mindfulness. Um, with David Trevellin in uh, Toronto. Um, and this trauma informed yoga and, uh, people are trying to understand even what I said in the beginning about maybe it's not the breath that's going to work for you that comes right out of that school that maybe, you know, you should never feel you're doing remedial work or you're lesser because what is right for you is going to look a little different than the kind of standardized instruction because it doesn't have to be the standardized instruction to be viable
0: thank you sharon i, I, I there are still people in with, uh, sending questions in the chat and there's still people with their hands raised and it would be lovely to go on but we uh, but so thank you so much for your contributions but i think we should we should probably draw this to a close my so apologies to everyone who hasn't had a chance to have your questions addressed um, so just just really time to say thank you so much Sharon for, for and everybody for joining us here tonight a beautiful mor- morning day afternoon <laughs> depending on where you are and it's just been so great to hear your, your teaching Sharon really really heartwarming and just wonderful to have so much support from from sangha around the world and Guy House in particular is enormously grateful for the tremendous support you've all shown Uh, Your your financial contributions have have been pivotal in us staying afloat and sustaining, ready to reopen, hopefully, in the spring. Uh,
1: Just thank you so much. Thank you all. It's really been lovely.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.